near and new world, most people, at least I hope, enjoy stories in their many different forms. We at the station find ourselves particular fans of the things in all of their great variety. So we thought we'd try to tell a few stories of our own. We'll share with you the tales that the archives have hoarded over their long history. Tales of the boy and the girl, the desert nomad and two fools with the dryad soon to come, and others later, perhaps. But, for the meantime, without further ado, It takes quite a few seconds for the pirate to figure out his bluff. I think you'll find me very trustworthy, he says, guarding his hands in his pockets. His lazy smirk does him no favours. That has yet to be seen, and my question has yet to be answered. Some shifting of the scarves could be him folding his arms. You may have the garb of a pirate, yet your frame is not that of a seafarer or even close and you have no boat or crew to speak of. He gestures around at the featureless landscape. Neither do you, he says, grasping at straws. Through the twisting cloth the man sighs, tilting his head up for a moment. Squinting at the split sky, he rechecks the plan in his head. To drag his uniform through the dirt of the desert, find the shipwright, somehow drag them back to the Bureau, wrestle with the Lordship then, concede and sulk back to his shack. Well, you're not wrong. A flat reply accompanies the man, locking his eyes again. This buffoon evidently had no business here, or any reason rather to be hopelessly stumbling through the dunes. I have reason to believe, however, that you have been subjecting this rain to undue magical conduct of a piracy-ridden nature. Do you possess any Ambrose? I'm not trying to pirate this desert, sir. I'm simply very bored, he declares, in a mockery of Earl's esoteric accent. But do you possess any Ambrose? The coins fall back through the pirate's fingers. Why, of course not. The girl crouched down, slipping her feet out of the familiar shape of her skates. Grasping them in one hand, she padded through the ash to a jagged metal sleigh. She climbed onto it, pulling open its small door and crawling inside, pulling off her goggles and hanging them on a hook by the hatch door as she did so. She took a deep breath as she lifted her goggles off her head. The air felt thicker heavy with the smell of hot metal and sulphur. But she was grateful to be out of the ash storm. It was much calmer in here. The sleigh rattled to the distant sounds of wind, but it brought her comfort. The room was small and cramped. There was a space for her to sleep along one wall that just about fit her. She was very relieved when she had stopped growing a few years ago. Otherwise, she'd probably have to widen the whole cabin. There was a shelf, too, just a few feet directly above her bed, with a ledge welded roughly onto it to stop objects falling off. Along it were tools, makeshift spanners and screws, bits of piping and scrap metal that rattled constantly as the sleigh was buffeted. 
There was an ash-covered, no longer red carpet that covered about half of the floor, covered in many burnt marks, burned through completely in places, and the ornate traditional patterns upon it were completely faded. On the opposite wall to her bed were the remnant scratchings of etched-out designs in equations carved into the metal. It was warped, slightly uneven, where she had melted over it to wipe it blank. The furnace at the far end provided a pulsing light to the cabin. The girl turned her thoughts to the three dials affixed to it, now dragging her knees across the worn rug towards them. She went over, pulling open with a loud scrape the hatch on the top of it, and produced from her pocket the ambrose she had found. Inspecting it closer, she realised she could actually see through it to an extent. The firelight was warped through it, as though through a prism, tinting the cab in amber. But she could still see through it. A slight smile passes over her face, under the mask, as she realised the extent of its purity. This alone, she thought, would last her a good few days. She dropped it into the furnace, watching the flames trace the crystal's half-pyramid shape. She settled down now. Nestling her head into the bundle of cloth she used as a pillow. The heat of the furnace, the slight shake of the sleigh, and now the ticking from the dials all lulled her into drowsiness. Watching the meters, she drifted off to sleep. She looked up, shaking her head as though trying to clear it. There was reverberation, a ringing in her ears. A strange sound she could not place for a few moments, but then, as she strained her ears... She heard it. Through the walls of the tent, the stifled sounds of the world had simply turned off. She bolted up from pure, frigid fear, straining for sound, her hairs standing on end, desperately trying to make out the joyful screams of the people in the fair, or some hushed chatter from the outside, or footsteps in the grass, any semblance of noise. But the sound was gone. There was nothing to be heard. It pressed against her, throbbing. She could feel herself shaking for a few moments. Then she stood. The loud groan of the chair scraped against her ears, unravelling in the darkness of the tent for far longer than it should have. Each tiny sound swelled into loudness in the dead air, then dissolved. She noticed that she'd started to sweat and wiped her brow as she listened, Stepping towards the tent flap for some escape, she felt each muscle creak with every footfall, hardly noticing how slowly she was moving. She pulled the flap aside and was left retching at the world before her. So, pirate, your name? What trust may I put in such a wicked and unmanly fellow? I put no trust in unmanly fellows. He tries to reach for his flask, but remembers that it is empty and his hands are now bound. I shall not tell you my name. Earl presses into his back to keep him moving along. He reaches for the pirate, twisting around the inside of the coat collar, revealing the incompetently stitched lettering. Core, Captain of the Universe. The trust which any rational being would put in his Earl, Core. The pirate hesitates to speak upon hearing his name, looking as if he is stirring words in his mouth. He claims with false indignation after a moment, I've never heard of this core you speak of. Then he pauses and asks, What's an earl? A me, 
Earl replies. He doubts this man would understand anything else. Ah, Cor nods and smirks. So you're with the Lordship, then? Earl stopped moving as a groan escaped him. There was nothing to this core, it seemed, but surprises and falsehoods. And yet, he had a strange charm to him which piqued his curiosity, similar to how one might feel when reading an obituary or walking past a horrific accident. He was an absurd creature, of course, yet this manner of floundering through conversation could not help but amuse the Earl. He pulls one of the binding scarves a little tighter. Yes, I suppose I am. Now tell me, have you seen a metal sled or a figure clothed in bandages in your time here? Now Cor sees an opportunity. I might have. A name, then. Have you heard of a nomad? The name flares something in Cor's mind as a beacon of intention lights back up. He stands a little straighter. No. Can't say I have. She turned her back on it and closed her eyes, breathing short, sharp breaths now, sweat pouring down her face and dripping onto the turf with gentle thuds. Swallowing again, she looked up. Everything had stopped. The people, the rides, the sound, the movement, frozen in place with pinpoint stillness. The air was the same outside as it was within, utterly windless and motionless. Leaves that would have been falling rested mid-curl at different distances to the ground. As her eyes flicked over each person, she took in the awkward paused walks and rigid faces spread out along the path through the trees, and not moving. Past them were the rides of the fairground, which made her sick to look at from their whirling velocity made nothing. She almost screamed as she heard a sound from behind her of heavy velvet brushing against grass and turned to see the boy. The one who'd been asleep. The one from the tent. The boy. He was there too. He moved. He moved past her. He had moved. He had moved. Each of his footsteps echoed against the grass. But he wasn't shaking or sweating. He wasn't, he wasn't panicking. He seemed serene almost, though his face did show concern. She stammered for a moment, gasping, trying to get the words out. Hearing this, he turned to her, a quizzical expression on his face, and shrugged, moving away to inspect one of the unmoving people. How was he so calm about this? She struggled with her voice for a few seconds more before managing to get out. What is this? She heard her voice sound out, utterly depthless. She could almost see how air moved back when she spoke. The boy turned back to her again and shrugged once more, looking confused that she would ask such a question. The girl, with a sudden burst of panicked energy, reached into her pocket and pulled out her phone. Dialing the emergency services, she held it to her ear and waited, desperate to hear some kind of answer. She looked at the screen. She kept it trembling in her hand, should it connect. It wasn't going to connect. She looked up 
seeing the boy leaning in close to a man perched frozen at a bench. He was smiling, sitting opposite a child, some nine or ten years old, mouth open, halfway through a word he would not complete. The boy extended a finger towards him, pressing the back of the hand which was part way through some kind of gesticulation, the meaning of which could not be inferred without motion. The hand moved a few inches, as far as the boy pushed, and no further. It was now she threw up. It was like toying with a corpse. Unable not to hear the heavy, wet splatters against the grass, the boy winced a little, turning away and instinctively putting one finger in his ear, the heavy breathing behind him still the only audible thing. But she wasn't looking, and so when she heard the soft sound of foot against earth coming up behind her, and a calming hand was placed on her shoulder, she thought little of it. It must have been the boy. She looked up, recovering, breathing heavily. Thank you, but... My name is Send, said the new figure. Despite his dark skin tone, he was entirely white, as though a fine chalk dust had settled over him and could simply drift off at any second. His hair was short, his shirt simple, jeans torn in places, and he wore a pair of sandals with miniature wings upon his feet. They were all the same powder white, and the still sun shone behind him. He bore a grim smile of certainty, yet it had a warmth to it, a quality of acceptance and of welcoming. There is much to discuss, he said. Welcome to the moment. New Noir Space Time Radio is created and written by Joe Mayo and Samir Hutchings. It is produced by Samir Hutchings, with original music by Samir Hutchings. West of the Wilderness was read by Andy Harrison. In the Moment was read by Hannah Scott Joint. And the voice of the curator was Joe Mayo. You can follow us on Twitter at nnstr underscore podcast.